This is the word of the Lord according to Mark chapter 8 verses 1 through 10. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd, because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said, that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about four thousand people, and he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. It's the word of God. You may be seated. Well, good morning, church. It is good to be with all of you this morning. Um, If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. We're going to have the scriptures up on the screen as well, as well as we always typically will have Bibles out in the lobby that you can grab one on your way in. Uh, But if you've got one with you, open up to Mark chapter 8. I know it's been a few weeks since we've been in the book of Mark, but I'm excited to be able to jump back in with you all this morning. And the next few weeks, we're going to be working our way through Mark chapter 8. Now, let me explain the, the sport coat here for a second, okay? I, uh, I didn't all of a sudden try to get fancy on you guys, uh, and you guys did not give me a raise. Nothing like that has happened, okay? Uh, but this sport coat, it was given to me by Stan Good, uh, Kevin Good's father, who had uh, a pretty serious brain surgery this last Monday. And so as he was preparing for uh, surgery, he was kind of clearing out his closet and just getting rid of things and, uh, and kind of getting things settled. Um, and so he gave this to me and it fit. And I was like, hey, that's great. Surgery was successful, and so I'm wearing this this morning as a reminder for us to be praising God and thanking him for his faithfulness, keeping Stan safe through that surgery, uh, as well as a reminder to us to continue to pray for him as he rehabs and just recovers, Um, as well as now that it seems like he's going to have many, many, many more years uh, here on earth, I think I have to give the jacket back. I'm not sure. Uh, So I at least wanted to wear it once. Uh, So this is, this was my chance, okay? Okay. all right, but let's, let's pray before we jump into God's word, and let's pray for Stan um, Good as he's recovering. Father, you are such a good and gracious and loving Father to us. Father, forgive us for how we have forgotten, even this past week, just how good and faithful you are. But Lord, we do thank you for keeping Stan safe through surgery. We thank you for this being a successful surgery and, and, and bringing him through it. And Lord, we ask that even now as, he, as he's healing and as he has some pain and some, some lingering effects from the surgery, God, we ask that you would heal him, that you would comfort him, that you would be with him and the rest of the family. And ultimately, God, that he would recover and uh, that, uh, that you would receive all the glory for this. 
So, Lord, may we be reminded of your faithfulness today as your word goes forth. We trust and know and believe this is your word that can change us and transform us. Help us behold your glory, your holiness. Help us rest and enjoy the cross of Christ and all that, Jesus, you have accomplished for us. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, when, when Britt and I first moved into our house here in Franklin a few years ago, we had some work done on the house. So initially, when you walked in the front door of our house, there was this separate office space area that you'd have to walk around that to get into the main living room in the kitchen area. And uh, due to a combination of watching way too much HGTV, uh, as well as having some money from the sale of our other house, we decided to do some construction on the area. We decided to, to kind of break down those walls and just create one big open space. And so we hired a, a, a contractor and someone to work on the area. And so the first few weeks of the house, it was like a construction zone, okay? There was constant noise. There was constantly people there working on things. Uh, you know, there was the noise of of hammering and drilling and sawing, walls being torn down, new ones being framed, all this work being done. Often we'd be eating breakfast and our meals and, and there'd be guys just like right next to us working on stuff. And, and the boys got so used to it that finally when the project was done, they were like, hey, where did the guys go? <laughs> like, they, they just assumed they were kind of part of this new house. Like, where, where did the guys go? Like, and so we had to explain to them, no, they don't actually live here. They were just working on something. Uh, but now that project is done. Um, but in this construction project, just like any other construction project, uh, it does cause some problems, right? I mean, it does cause some things that kind of got in the way that we weren't big fans about. So first of all, noise was a problem. I mean, we would sit at the table barely able to hear one another because of all the noise that was happening in that construction zone. Dust, dust was a problem. Our, our floors and our countertops and our furniture was just covered in this kind of thin film of dust that we would try to clean off or keep things covered. Space was a problem. There was literally parts of the house that we could not use. And then privacy was a problem, right? I mean, here were these men that we didn't know really well, and we spent like full days with them, and they were in our house, and, and so we didn't have that privacy that we once had. Now, if the boys just looked at those problems, it could be easy for them to be like, hey, like, how in the world is this house any better than where we were before? I mean, this house is noisy, this house is dirty, this house is crowded, there's strange people in this house. Why in the world, mom and dad, would you take us from where we were comfortable? Why would you bring us to this? All I see is problems. But you see, Britt and I, we were willing to allow some of these problems. Why? Because we had a plan, all right? We had a plan. We were able to endure, kind of and persevere through these problems because, number one, we knew they were temporary, right? To use biblical language, we knew it was some light and momentary affliction. And, and number two, we were able to endure because our hope was set on the ultimate plan of having this wide open space where we could enjoy family and friends. I mean, we would fantasize, just think, once this is all done, we could be sitting on the couch and one of our boys just serenading us on the piano while we could look out the backyard and the other one's mowing the lawn and the other two are preparing a dinner for us, right? Like, and maybe I was fantasizing too much, but that was our hope. Our, that was our hope. 
And so as construction carried on, the boys slowly but surely were able to see how these problems were revealing to them this plan as well that we had. Now listen, we do this all the time with God. God, why did you bring me to this place in life? God, why did you bring me to this season? Why did you bring me this problem? Why did you bring me this conflict or this heartache? I was comfortable where I was. And in our passage this morning, we are going to once again see Jesus and his disciples and the crowd. They are going to be out in a desolate place once again. We've seen this before. And once again, they're not going to have anything to eat. And the disciples are going to come to him. And they are not able to see how this problem is going to fit into his plan. They're not going to be able to see it. And as we talk and walk through this text, we're going to talk about how our problems fit into his plan and how our problems are revealing to us some of his plan. And if you get nothing else out of this sermon, I want you to take this home with you this morning. So this is the sermon bumper sticker moment, okay? God does not have problems. He has plans, okay? God does not have problems. He has plans plans. Okay, let's go. I've got a lot of pent-up preaching energy. It's been a few weeks since I've preached, so just buckle up and let's do this. Okay, Mark 8. Mark 8 verse 1. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, and some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? Now, if this sounds familiar to you, It's not deja vu, okay? You should hopefully remember, if you've been here the past few months preaching through Mark, you should remember two chapters ago, in Mark chapter 6, Jesus feeds 5,000 men, which that was just men. It was probably like 20,000 people. That's Banker's Life Fieldhouse full. Jesus took five loaves and two fish, and he fed the multitude. And at first, if I could be honest, I just considered preaching the same sermon from chapter 6, changing a couple of the numbers around, seeing if anybody noticed. But I decided not to do that, okay? And so then I'm just prayerfully, like, struggling and wrestling. God, why would you have seemingly such a similar story? Two chapters later, I mean, I don't know what the title in your Bible says, but in chapter 6 it says Jesus feeds the 5,000, and now we're in chapter 8 and it says Jesus feeds the 4,000. Why would John Mark, inspired by the Holy Spirit, why did God want this here in the gospel according to Mark, just two chapters away from such a similar story? Well, one of the reasons I believe that this story is included, as well as Jesus feeding the 5,000, is because when Jesus fed the 5,000, that was taking place in primarily a Jewish region, okay? And so we learned that Jesus, initially, he came to his Jewish people. The Jewish people were hungering. They were like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus, out of his compassion, then abundantly provided for them. All who hungered were satisfied. And then in chapter 7 of Mark, we start seeing him venture out into the Gentile regions. He even goes outside of the the historic uh, border of ancient Israel, right? Because love knows no borders. I heard an old wise pastor preach that one Sunday. 
Uh, and so in chapter 7, we started to see Jesus then going to the Gentiles. We started to see how he was not only going to be the rescuer, the Messiah, the Christ to one nation, but he was going to be the Savior of the world. And so now we come to this story once again, but even though it's a similar, even though it's a similar story, similar setting, it's now primarily a Gentile crowd that is with him. Yes, he first came to the Jews but now we are learning that his salvation has come to all nations and to all people. So these passages in chapter 7 and as we now get to chapter 8, they are a great encouragement to us, right? Us people who have been grafted in to the people of God, that Jesus is not just the Savior to one nation, but he is the Savior of the world. And all the non-Jewish people in the building said, Amen. Right, okay. But another reason I believe that this passage is included in Mark's gospel is because it reveals some human problems. It does. It's going to bring up some problems. But it's even more gloriously going to show us how those problems are revealing to us some of God's plan. And so we're going to look at three problems today. I felt like wearing the sport coat, I had to have a three-point sermon. I don't know why, it just felt right, okay? So we've got three points and three problems that we're going to look at. And the first problem that this passage reveals is humanity's forgetfulness. Humanity's forgetfulness. Verse 4 of Mark chapter 8, and his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? I mean, at first, we got to be like, come on, guys. I mean, anyone without a significant brain injury or anyone who hasn't, you know, gotten the men in black, the flash pen memory erased, right? Anyone in their right mind should be able to remember this from two chapters ago. Sh shouldn't their response instead be like, hey, uh, Jesus, you know that one thing that you do? where you take the bread and, and you multiply it and you feed everybody, like whatever recipe that was, let's do that. I've seen this before. I know how this is going to play out. But no, they say, how? They say, how? They look around. They see the crowd. They see the thousands of people. They see the limited amount of bread that they have, and they say, how? How, Jesus? And I'm not going to dwell on this point very long because it's too convicting. But we really can't give the disciples too much grief over this because we are often just like them. We are a forgetful people. Amen. We have a problem of forgetfulness. And it's a much more serious problem than just forgetting where you put your keys or forgetting someone's birthday or forgetting to email someone back. No, we have a problem of forgetting about God. We often forget the goodness, the grace, the power, and the love of God, and a situation then presents itself to us, and we say, how? How? How, God? I see the crowd. I see how much bread I have. How? And this isn't just the problem that was unique to the disciples. It's not just a problem that is unique to us. But this is a problem that the people of God have always had. If you do have your Bible, look back in Psalm 78. We are going to have it up on the screen. But if you've got your Bible in your lap, turn to Psalm 78. 
It's a, it's a long psalm. It's a historical psalm uh, that is recounting the faithfulness of God to the people of God as he led them out of Egypt. He rescued them from slavery. He provided for them in the wilderness. His faithfulness to them. And then we get to verse 32. Psalm 78, verse 32. We've just, in, the, in Psalm 78 leading up, it's been all about the faithfulness of God. Rescuing, redeeming, providing. And then we get to verse 32. And it says, in spite of all of this, they still sinned. Despite his wonders, they did not believe. Skip down to verse 37. Their heart was not steadfast toward him. They were not faithful to his covenant. Verse 38, yet he, yet he, those are two beautiful words, yet he being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. He restrained his anger often and did not stir up all his wrath. He remembered that they were but flesh in a wind that passes and comes not again. How often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. They tested God again and again and provoked the Holy One of Israel. Verse 42, here it is. They did not remember his power or the day when he redeemed them from the foe. I'm going to read verse 42 again. They did not remember his power or the day when he redeemed them from the foe. Church, aren't so many of our struggles a result of our forgetfulness that we do not remember his power or the day when he redeemed us from the foe. We look at the crowd and we look at the bread and we say, how? Right? We, we look at temptation and we look at our lack of self-control and we say, how? We look at a hopeless situation and we look at our despairing heart and we say, how? We look at our bills and we look at our account and we say, How? We look at our kids' energy levels and we look at our patients' level and we say, how? And then we look at the promised restoration the Bible gives us and we look at the news and we say, how? And when we do, we show that we do not remember his power or the day when he redeemed us from the foe. But church, what does our forgetfulness reveal about his plan? I don't want to just dwell on our problems and our shortcomings. What does our forgetfulness reveal about his plan? Look in Psalm 78 again, back up to 30, verse 37. Their heart was not steadfast toward him. They were not faithful to his covenant. Yet he, being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity. Praise be to God that the problem of our forgetfulness reveals to us his faithful compassion. Look back in Mark now. Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8 verse 2. Jesus says, I have compassion on the crowd. Church, when we forget, 
God is still faithful. Our relationship with God is not like so many of our other experiences here on earth, right? I mean, if, if we forget to pay a bill, the electricity gets cut off, right? When we forget to water a plant, it dies. When we forget to set the alarm clock, we miss the meeting. And when we forget the goodness, grace, love, and power of our God, he is still faithful to us. His compassion and his faithfulness does not waver. His mercies are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness to a forgetful people. That's point number one. I said I'm going three points, okay? Point number one, our forgetfulness reveals his faithfulness. Look back at verse two, Mark 8, verse two. I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, and some of them have come from far away. The people are hungry. They've been with Jesus for three days now. They've been away from their homes. They've been away from the larger towns or cities that could, could feed this great multitude of people. They are out in a desolate place, and Jesus sees their problem, and he is not going to send them away hungry. Matthew's gospel records this story as well. And what Matthew's gospel records Jesus saying is, I am unwilling to send them away hungry. Isn't that a good word from Jesus? I am unwilling to send them away hungry. And there seems to be this theme that we see in scripture that God loves to satisfy his people out in the desolate places. I mean, he provided manna out in the wilderness for his people. Jesus often went to a secluded, desolate place to commune with the Father. The 20,000, just a couple chapters ago, were out in a desolate place, and Jesus fed them, and they were satisfied. And here Jesus, once again, he sees the hungering of his people, and doing something that only God could do, he takes the limited bread and fish, and he creates enough to feed the crowd and verse 8 says, And they ate and were satisfied, and they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. It was more than enough that Jesus provided. Now listen, the problem of our hungering, what it reveals is that we need something outside of ourselves to sustain us and satisfy us. And ultimately, what the problem of hunger reveals is that we need God to satisfy us. When people share with me that they feel like they're in a dry season with God, or they feel like they're out in the wilderness with God, they just feel like, like things aren't refreshing like they used to be. When people say they feel like they're in a desolate place with God, they're hungering and longing for God, I actually get excited for them. Because oftentimes, God takes his people to the desert, to the wilderness, not to starve them, but to satisfy them. If you think God takes people to the desert to starve them, you have a wrong view about God. He takes people to the desert to satisfy them with himself. And so if you feel like you are in a desolate place with the Lord, let me encourage you, continue to seek him. Continue to long for him. 
continued to hunger for him. Matthew 5, verse 6, on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Why? For they shall be satisfied. They shall be satisfied. Blessed are those who hunger. Happy are those who thirst. Why? For they shall be satisfied. Here's my concern, though, okay? My concern is that many of us are in desolate, dry places, but we have no idea what it means to hunger because we keep ourselves full on all the wrong stuff. We don't trust that God can satisfy us, and so instead we are going to fill ourselves up with food and with lust and with accomplishments and with power and with control and with productivity, And with possessions and with gossip and with popularity. We're like the guy whose in-laws left a giant bag of peanut M&Ms at his house. And he gets full on them right before a good dinner is about to be set before him. It's a theoretical situation. (laughs) What kind of monster would do that right before a good dinner? Settle for M&Ms. But that's what we do. That's what we do. The problem of our hunger is supposed to reveal that God satisfies, but we stay full on all the wrong stuff. And many of us, especially in our culture and our society, we live in this great abundance where there's food and restaurants and grocery stores right around the corner. We read a verse like, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And I think if we could be honest, we don't even really understand what it means to hunger. I don't think we really get what it means to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Okay? Because let me clarify, hunger, to really hunger... It's not that feeling you have two hours after breakfast, one hour before lunch, okay? That's not what true hunger really is. And so I believe that this is where the idea of fasting can be so healthy for us in our society and our spiritual formation. Because what you are doing when you are fasting is you are willingly going to the desolate place to hunger for God because you know that he can and he will satisfy you. And so whether you fast from food or from social media or from entertainment, you are abstaining from something in order to get into the state of hunger. Like whatever you have been getting full on instead of God, you remove that and you experience hunger. And that hunger is a continual reminder of the actual hunger of your soul. And it is hungering for righteousness. It is hungering for Jesus. And so when you fast, you are removing something that was filling you up and you are seeking and trusting that God can and will satisfy you. When you are fasting, you are trusting that Jesus is not willing to send you away hungry. And by fasting and seeking after the Lord, you are trusting what Matthew 7, 7 says, Seek and you will find. There's nothing wrong with hungering and thirsting. There's nothing wrong with being in the desolate place or a dry season. Do not despair. But seek the Lord and wait for him to satisfy you. 
I've heard it said that it is our prerogative to seek the Lord. It is his prerogative as to when he will be found. But what we hope and trust in, we know that those who seek him will find him. There might be a season of waiting. There might be a season in the desolate place. But those who seek him will find him. Psalm 34 verse 10. It says, the young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Lack no good thing. So as a church, we are going to try to help encourage this spiritual formation of fasting during the season of Lent, which that starts on Ash Wednesday, March 6th, and it goes through Easter. And we are going to have an Ash Wednesday service, uh, and we'll talk about that a little later on. But it's not, it's not a requirement for anyone here, but it's an encouragement because we believe that blessed is the one who hungers for the Lord. Happy is the one who hungers for God. And so whatever you've been getting full on, let's remove that so that we might know what it means to hunger for the Lord. That's point number two. The problem of our hunger reveals God's plan to satisfy Point number one was our forgetfulness reveals his faithfulness. And now the problem of our hunger reveals God's plan to satisfy. And all, the, all along the way, we're knowing and learning and trusting that God does not have problems. He has plans. Look back at Mark 8, verse 5. Mark 8, verse 5. And he asked them, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven. He directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people, and they set them before the crowd. Now, don't miss this. Jesus asks how many loaves they have, and this time they have seven. That's two more than last time, if you do the quick math, okay? Uh, but look, seven loaves, think about it this way, seven loaves would have likely been enough to feed and satisfy the 12 disciples, right? I, I mean, they could have sent the crowd away and had enough for themselves. If I was one of the disciples, I mean, I, I probably would have been thinking this way. I mean, hey, these seven loaves, they're not going to touch the thousands of people's hunger, but they are enough to feed us. So let's send these people away and we have enough for ourselves. What good would it do anyway, these seven loaves of bread amongst 4,000 or however many thousand would be there? Uh, this is what I want you to do. I want you to picture your family in the midst of this crowd. And I want you to picture your family having these seven loaves of bread. And imagine what would have to be going on through your head and through your heart to be willing to give up these seven loaves. Like, here, you have these seven loaves. You know it's enough to feed your family, but you think it's not enough to feed everyone else. What point is there to give these up to Jesus? You give up what you know would meet your family's needs, and by faith, you're, you would have to trust that Jesus can take your little, and it will be enough to not only provide for you, but abundantly for the multitude. As one of the providers for my family, that would be a tough situation to be in. 
to give up these seven loaves that I know would take care of this close group right here and trust that Jesus can multiply it for the multitude. And the reason I think that is a tough situation for me and for many of us is because we think that we are the main provider for our family. Men, if you think you are the main provider for your family, I will say this as lovingly as I can, but you are a prideful fool. And I say that because I love you. And I said it to myself. I, I, I typically read through, talk through the sermon once or twice, and as I said it the first time, God just laid such strong conviction on me that I knew that one was for me first. <laughs> But I think a lot of us need to hear that. And the reason I can say that is because I know Philippians 4.19 says that my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. God might use you and your work and your hard work and your, to, to provide for your family, but you are not the main provider for your family. My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches. And you see, the reason I would want to hold on to the bread for me and my family and not give it to Jesus and trust that he could supply everyone's needs is because I often think of this. I often think this way, and I think this is a big deal. So if I've lost you and, and you're, and you're, you're uh, kind of daydreaming off, come back to me, okay? Uh, because I think we often think these, this way. We look at our seven loaves of bread. We look at what we have, and I think we view them as our possessions. We view them as our possessions instead of realizing that these are his provisions. There's a big difference there when you start viewing what you have as your possessions or are they his provisions. And so church, let me ask you, the seven loaves of bread that you have, whether that's your money, your time, your gifts, your home, your talents, your things, do you think of them as your possessions or do you think of them as his provisions? Now, I, I get the struggle. I get the struggle. We live in a world that does not acknowledge God as God. We are taught that what we can see and what we can touch is all that we have. We are taught to look out for ourselves and our families first and foremost. We are taught that resources are limited and anything you have, you better find a way to hold on to it or else someone else is going to take it. You better find a way to protect it or ensure it because if you lose it, how will your family be provided for in the future? And we can become like the people of God in the wilderness when God was abundantly providing manna day in and day out. Some were hoarding it just in case he wouldn't provide tomorrow. Church, listen, God has abundant plans for the provisions he has given you, just like these seven loaves of bread. But we take these provisions and we wrongly view them as possessions, and we hold on to them only to find that they grow rotten and they spoil and they never produce the abundant plans that they were meant to. 
And here's, here's the problem with a lot of the, the self-help or the motivational content that is getting put out there right now, which don't get me wrong, there's a lot of wisdom and good things that you can learn and implement from non-Christians. I've, I've learned a lot about leadership and productivity and time management and things like that from non-Christians. There's a lot of wisdom you can glean from them, but here's what you need to watch out for with some of it. Because at the heart of some of it, they are telling you to believe that you possess all you need. And the Bible would say, no, God provides all you need. Self-help motivational speakers will tell you that you are enough. The Bible clearly says, no, God is enough. And I know that might seem like a subtle difference, but one leads you down a path of self-worship and self-glorification, and one leads you down a path of the worship and glory of God. Because if you believe that you possess all you need, if you believe that you are enough, you will turn inward on yourself, you will glorify yourself, you will worship yourself, and that has never ended well for anyone. But if you believe that God provides all you need, you will turn outward, you will glorify God, you will worship him, and that is what will lead to lasting joy and contentment and happiness in life because that is what you were created to do. Well, how, how do we practically fight this temptation to see our provisions as possessions? Okay, let's get practical. How do we fight this temptation? Everything we have, we want to see them as possessions, but we know that they are provisions. How do we fight that? Well, one spiritual discipline or one habit of grace that can help us in the fight is practicing generosity. As a follower of Jesus, we are to be generous with others as God has been generous with us. Now, I know some of you might be thinking, all right, hold on to your wallet. A uh, sport coat is coming after him, right? Okay, that's not the case. I'm coming after your heart. It's just your wallet has a hold on your heart, so it feels like I'm coming after your wallet, okay? All right, we should be giving our provisions towards gospel ministry through the church, through missionaries. The Bible is clear that we should be providing for our pastors and elders and those who labor in teaching and preaching and shepherding our souls. The Bible is clear that we should be generous towards the poor and the widows and the orphans. The Bible is clear that we should be generous in showing hospitality to one another and welcoming others into our lives. And the reason that we even still set up an offering box here on Sunday mornings, even though many give online, it's because we do view it as an act of worship. When I give, I'm saying these are not possessions. These are provisions. When I give, I'm saying I know these seven loaves might be enough to provide for my family, but I believe, Jesus, you can take this and you can multiply this abundantly and provide for all. So church, let me ask you, how can you be more generous? And I'm really not just talking about money, okay? I'm not. Some of you are stingy with your time. Some of you are stingy with your talents and your gifts. Some of you are stingy with your home and your things. And you are this way, we can be this way, because we're afraid that if we give them, that there won't be enough to provide for us tomorrow. 
And this is a weekly struggle for me. I put in hours to prepare to preach, and I usually sit there Saturday night thinking, I don't really know if this is good enough to do anything for the kingdom. I could have spent those hours with my family or with my boys, or I I should have saved those seven loaves of time that I had and used them to benefit some other way. And maybe some of you even think this way as you get here early to church to serve or to give or to get things ready, or as you serve one another, or as you open up your homes for your city group to come in. And as you do all these things, you might be thinking, is this even really worth it? Are, is me giving up these seven loaves, is it doing anything for the kingdom? Wouldn't it just been better to hold on to it and provide for my family? And so we hold on to what we've been given. We view them as possessions because we're fearful we won't have enough for tomorrow. And we're skeptical that they would be enough to make a difference anyway. And Charles Spurgeon felt this way as well about his preaching and his sermons, which is laughable to us now because we know how great an impact his ministry was. But this is what Spurgeon once said. However small is the stock with which we begin, we have only to dedicate it all to him. And he will multiply and increase it until it will go far beyond our utmost expectations. And there will be more left after the feast is over than there was before it began. Bring your small talents. Bring the little grace that you have to Christ, for he can so increase your store that you will never know any lack, but shall have all the greater abundance, the greater the, the, excuse me, the demand that is made upon that store. What are you holding on to? What are you being stingy with? that you need to hand over to Christ and trust what he can do with the little that you have. Philippians 4.19, once again, it says, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. So that's point number three. The problem of our possessions reveals to us God's plan of abundant provisions. The problem of our possessions, it's revealing to us God's plan of abundant provisions. And in closing, let me encourage you, church, to not get so stuck in your problems that you can't start to see God's plan being revealed. Know know and take heart in the fact that God does not have problems. He has plans. Our forgetfulness reveals his faithfulness. Our hunger reveals that he satisfies. And our possessions reveal his plan of abundant provisions. When we focus only on our problems, we can only see the dust. We can only hear the noise. We can only see the inconvenience that they cause, just like that construction on our house. And we can lose sight of the beautiful master plan that our great God is orchestrating. Corey Tinboom, during World War II, her and her family, they had a hidden room that they built to hide Jewish people to help them escape the Holocaust. They were eventually caught, and she was herself sent to a concentration camp. So you think you have problems. Corey Tinboom had some problems. 
and some hardships in life. But after the war, she would often, when speaking or sharing about her experience, she would share a poem called The Master Weaver's Plan. And I'll leave that with you this morning. It reads this way. It says, My life is but a weaving between the Lord and me. I may not choose the colors. He knows what they should be. For he can view the pattern upon the upper side, while I can only see it on this, the underside. Sometimes he weaves in sorrow, which seems so strange to me, but I will trust his judgment and work on faithfully. Tis he who fills the shuttle and he who knows what is best, so I shall weave in earnest and leave to him the rest. Not till the loom is silent and the shuttle cease to fly shall God unroll the canvas and explain the reason why. The dark threads are as needed in the weaver's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern that he has planned. Let's pray.